On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about The Crown. You know that the Netflix series, or at least the new season, is out. But does this help the brand of the royal family because it's giving so much more publicity? Or does the representation that we see on TV hurt them? We're going to be joined by a well-known and excellent local monarchist to talk about that. And Don Robertson joins us to talk about golf, about new hockey sweaters, and maybe the Baseball Hall of Fame, too. We'll get to all of that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. One of the most eagerly anticipated series in a long time came out on Netflix on the weekend. I'm guessing many of you either favorited it or have already sat down and begun watching. Maybe some of you plowed through the whole thing and binge-watched all of the fourth season of The Crown. And the reason why this season in particular is creating so much buzz, it seems, is because the, the, the Crown, the three previous series, three previous seasons, have told the story of Queen Elizabeth's reign from pretty much the time even before she was queen, right up until, well, this season starts and we're into the time of Margaret Thatcher and more particularly the arrival of Diana Spencer. It's just juicy, juicy, juicy stuff that people cannot wait to see. And I think a large part of this is because for many, many people watching, this is the part of the story that they remember, that they live through, that they have a connection to. And so they are eager to have a little peek behind the curtain, even if it's not exactly nonfiction. We don't really know. Question is, this is huge attention at a time when the royal family gets, you know, gets, I mean, it's not forgotten, certainly, but... This is more attention than has been brought to the royal family in a long time. Is this good for the royal family's brand or does this make them look not so good and encourage those who are not monarchists that it's time to get rid of the monarchy? Nathan Tidridge is a teacher of history at Waterdown District High School. He teaches civics as well. Um, he has written six books exploring the crown in Canada. He is a recipient of the Queen's Jubilee gold medal, also the Diamond Jubilee medal. He was given that by the Prince of Wales. Uh, he is an expert on this stuff, and we love having him on the show whenever we want to talk about something to do with the royal family. Nathan, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, Scott. It's good to, uh, it's good to be with you tonight. So I, I, I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but have you watched any of the first three seasons of The Crown? Um, I have, and I'm uh, three episodes into the current season. Whether you love it or not, I think we can agree it's a pretty amazing series. I mean, what they've done and the 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 the, the view, the the pictures and everything—it's a pretty remarkable series they've made. It, it is remarkable. I mean, their their attention to detail and uh, the events that they highlight, uh, yeah, and uh, the amount of time and, and money that uh, Netflix has put into this series is uh, is pretty remarkable. The, the twist on that, I suppose, is because it's so remarkable, because as you talk about the attention to detail, because the actors have do done such a great job at becoming the characters that we know, we believe it, I think, or at least we're convinced to believe that we're looking at almost a documentary. Uh, yeah. We don't know how accurate this is, do we? No, I had somebody, or I read a review and they explained it as it's, uh, it's fiction with a veneer of truth. And so it does follow and highlight certain historical events, but it also rearranges them to better tell the drama that they're, that they're trying to convey. 
Uh, and so even if you try to follow the historical events chronologically, you'll find that they're a bit out of order in order to tell a better story. Yeah, there was a columnist for The Guardian, uh, a paper over in England, who wrote um, a pretty scathing takedown of the series. And, and under the headline, this is the headline, the popular TV series about the royal family is reality hijacked as propaganda and a cowardly <laughs> abuse of artistic license. So, I mean, clearly he's not a big fan of this, right. but he has he has a point, th- again, that because it's so realistic looking, yeah. uh, we can forget very quickly this is dramatized nonfiction. Absolutely. Uh, I always explain that to uh, when I'm teaching history to my students, that you never take uh, movies and television shows, you never watch them to learn history. Instead, you watch them to learn how people at the moment they were made saw those events. So it's more of an insight into the audience rather than an insight into members of the royal family. Does that necessarily make it unfair? Because that claim has been made that this is unfair to the royal family. Well, the royal family acts as a reflection uh, of, of kind of society, and so they're used as kind of a canvas in order to paint how the people view them at this moment of time in the, in the, in the 21st century. I mean, whether fair or not, that's what happens, and there's, there's a long history of that happening over generations. I mean, it's just now that it's, you know, it's consumed by, by millions and millions of people the medium that it uses is just so accessible to people that it's, it's just on a, on a greater scale, I think. But even if it was wildly off, even if there's parts of this that are so far away from the truth, right? the royal family can't possibly come out and comment on this, can they? Because it would make them look so thin-skinned, and it would also prove that they have watched this, which they've adamantly expressed that they haven't watched any of this. Right. Well, I mean, no, yeah, they, they would never comment on that because that is, that's part of being a member of the royal family. And I've heard some of the criticisms of the show are that uh, the queen, the, the character of the queen trying to define her is really, really difficult unless you define her over and against other characters. Well, that's the queen in present life as well. We're not meant to know anything about her because she's supposed to reflect back to us whatever it is we need that figure to be at that, at that time. And that's how she has, I think, endured. I mean, we're almost at 70 years that she sat on the throne. Um, and so she is what we need her to be at that moment of time. She allows for us to kind of project onto her. And that can be for better or for worse. I, I remember when Diana died. That's one of my, that's kind of when I became kind of aware of what was going on in the world and the history. And uh, the backlash that the queen faced, rightly or wrongly, that was, that was part of that visceral um, experience that people needed to have at that moment of time. The one thing that really, I think, screams out from the screen is this sense that the royal family is, is there's almost no connection to reality. They are in their own world. And, you know, as much as that might be a negative, I suppose, I can't say I entirely blame them. This is the lot they were handed and they've been told to live this life, but it doesn't look great all the time. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of the, the show, it's a necessary foil, I think, to the characters that they're also introducing. They, you know, Diana Spencer and certainly Margaret Thatcher. Uh, they, they, the royal family within the show is, is being kind of offered as a foil to those, to those two figures. Um, they do adapt, though. That's the extraordinary thing. They're still, they're still here. We're still, we're still talking about them or still, uh, 
uh, interested in them. So uh, I, I find that interesting. But I, I agree with you. Uh, definitely in the show, they are presented as a foil to those other two characters. And I was thinking about this, that, I mean, it's a soap opera. I mean, that's really what this is. It's a very expensive, very, very well-produced soap opera, but soap operas, you know, as long as the people are interesting, people will keep coming back. And I thought, is this going to lead people to say, oh, we got to get rid of the monarchy now. There's no purpose for it. As long as the monarchy continues to intrigue people, I got to think that people are still going to be okay with it. Yeah. I mean, they had to add an extra season to the crown, an extra season or two, I think, because it, it is so popular. Uh, with people. And uh, I mean, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee is in 2022. Uh, so that's not next year, but the year after. And I, I, I honestly think it's going to be uh, it's going to be a big event because we're going to be coming out of this out of COVID-19. There's going to be a need for some kind of a, a celebration. And then 70 years is such a wide swath of history that people are going to be quite familiar with because of shows like The Crown. I think it's going to be a uh, it's going to make for a very interesting, yeah. uh, an interesting celebration or an interesting year. Well, and think how few people are alive or will be alive who have not known anybody but Queen Elizabeth as the monarch. Yeah. I mean, that's ninety-five I percent of the people. Exactly. She, she's a, a, a Second World War veteran. I mean, it, it's extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, even Prince Charles. I mean, Prince Charles is seventy now. Um, <laughs> how many people have known a time? without him being around. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, there's that stability or that presence, um, in a world where it just seems like, especially 2020, 2020 feels like it's been a hundred years in one. Uh, but there is the, the, that kind of stability, I think. And even in the fact that, that it's a little, the, the family life is a little chaotic, but whose isn't. And I think there's a familiar, a familiarity there that, uh, that is appealing to people. Here's where this gets really sticky and tricky and whatever else you want to say. Um, we have heard that the Royal family has not watched this, but it seems abundantly clear from stories and stuff and things coming out of the palace that they are aware of how they are being presented, or that at least there are very much concerns about how they're being presented. Yeah. If that's true, and, and I don't have any reason to believe that they have been kept in a vault and not told what's going on in the world. If that's true, and if the family is being shown in a light that they may not approve of, how do they wrap their heads around the fact that Prince Harry right now has a production deal with Netflix and is connected with the company that is perhaps painting the royal family in a poor light? That's the thing. I, I, I don't think, I, I think they do. They just have to wrap their head around. It's, it's not a matter of how do they, they just have to, they have to adapt. That's how they have survived where other royal families have not. And in, a, in a, a century that has been filled with turmoil and dramatic change, the only way that you endure that is that you adapt to it and, and become what you need to in order to survive. And the institution has really shown its ability, its ability to do that. So I, just, I don't think they have an option. They just have to. And, and that's something that this show has shown. I mean, it's reminding people of all the different things that this they have been through and that they, um, the world has been through, and yet we, we just keep on going. I have to believe, though, that from monarchists who are watching and engaged in this series, maybe not happy with it, the yep. pressure for Prince Harry to now step away from that deal and stand with his family is going to be immense. And if he doesn't, I suspect he's going to be even less appreciated, let's call it, right uh, in the future than he already is with those people. 
I can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't pretend to have any insights into how the family views things or, or operates, but it must be, it's a very difficult position that he has put himself into. Uh, and I think to be separated from his family, uh, that was, from all accounts, quite a close-knit family, particularly him, his father, and, and William. By all accounts, they were a very tight-knit group. Um, it, it must be very, very difficult, especially right now uh, during COVID and and all of these things. And anything anything that he could be doing to further that golf um, is unfortunate. It is a fascinating story. And, you know, there's another royal story that we never even got a chance to get to today, but uh, down the road, perhaps. Um, Nathan yep. Tidridge, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Hey, thanks, Scott. It's my pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Did you watch the Masters on the weekend? I watched uh, more of the Masters than I have any any sport, I think, in the last six months. Yes, I did. And? Worth it or weird in the well, fall? Well, you know, I was, I, was, I was curious if we'd talk about it today, assuming we probably would have. But you and I may not be the guys to critique the golf of the Masters, but the event we can, I guess. Um, just, Dustin Johnson is uh, the best in the world right now. And, yep. boy, he's steady Eddie, isn't he? When and, he's on, um, when he's on, you can't beat him right now. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, when 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 you're when you're the best in the world and you're on, nobody should be able to be you. You know, Tagger did that for years. Like when you could tell, when you could see that look in his eye, and he had it all going. I mean, Tagger's a little different. He, I mean, he could scramble. He'd hit one into the woods and nobody could find it, and then he'd, you know, kind of bend it out through the trees and have it land in an absolute perfect spot. Uh, I don't know if Dustin Johnson can do that because he never seems to be in that kind of trouble when he's in a groove. But uh, the other interesting thing is is the the guys that tied for uh, second place, one from Australia and one from Japan, I thought added some interest to it. That M couldn't seem to hit the green, but with the short game, he would put it within three feet. And boy, he was uh, it was it was pretty entertaining. I, I really liked the drone. Because the drone was amazing. I, I don't, why have they not done that before? Because that was a, that was a whole new view of that place. Well, and, and you've been there, and you probably still appreciate the drone shots, right? I mean, the undulations. I mean, sometimes, and and you've told me this, and, and Barry Force told me the same thing. But you know, you can hit a pretty good shot, and then you can't see the green from where your next shot is because you're in such a big valley and. TV didn't used to give you that perspective, but, you know, from around the back and seeing the ponds and, and the small creeks that were there, I don't know if it's because they didn't have what you and I might call fans, but they didn't have patrons there. Maybe that's why, although I did hear Tagger say uh, it was kind of odd being able to hear the drone. So maybe they haven't been there before, but it was very cool. It was very, very cool from that aspect. Very odd that there were no people there. And the idea that, like Dustin Johnson, as you say, who won, he won the green jacket and full marks for it because he was by far the best player out there. I mean, what did he win by? Four strokes, five strokes. Um, At the same time, you know, when he sets the scoring record, I find I, I feel like there should be an asterisk beside it because it's not in April and because we kept hearing that the course was soft and and 
because of this and because of that, it just, it seems when you have one time that the tournament is not played at the same time and that's when they set the scoring record, it seems like, uh, okay, I, I, I'm not really ready to take the throne off Tiger, the, the crown off Tiger's head yet and say that that was the best ever Masters played. Yeah, I, I, I can concur with that. I mean, it was so, I mean, they had a rain delay on Thursday and, you know, you heard them talking Saturday and Sunday, the commentators by saying, you know, the greens still aren't hard and fast, which means you can stick the ball there. Um, it, it, it did play to a different level because of the time of the year and, and partly because of the moisture and partly because it's probably not as hot in November as it is in April. Um, although the pine needles added a bit of a different twist to it. Yeah, I, I, I like, I'm not taking anything away from Dustin Johnson. He played the same course all the other guys had to play. It's just when you get down to saying, what's the record, you know, some of those, some of those tournaments that Tiger Woods played and won by, what did he win by? Like 12 or 13 strokes one year. I mean, yeah. it's just, you, you, I'm having a hard time accepting that, this tournament by Dustin Johnson was better than that one by Tiger Woods or some of them by Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer. Anyway, I mean, it doesn't take anything away. I also saw today, now I think most people know, Don, that Dustin Johnson is the soon-to-be son-in-law of Wayne Gretzky. Uh, of course, Paulina Gretzky, who was there um, decked out in her master's green and uh, smooching up <laughs> Dustin, getting as much TV time as possible at the end there. Um, and I saw today a picture of Wayne Gretzky dressed in a master's caddy outfit, uh, having a funny picture with Dustin Johnson back home. You know, I, I was thinking about this because you saw last year when Tiger Woods won, there was that shot of Michael Phelps behind him, the Olympic great swimmer on number 16, watching and athletes are there. Preston Manning, er, not Preston Manning, Pre um, Peyton Manning, Pre Preston Manning is a whole different issue. Um, Peyton Manning was there a while back. Why does every athlete who does amazingly athletic things and stuff that golfers could never hope to do, dunk basketballs and run for days and, and do all this stuff, why does every athlete seemingly want to be a golfer? I think, I think probably because a couple of reasons. First of all, it's for their egos, it's very humbling and they don't like being, you know, humble because they're, Generally speaking, they excel at the sport they're at. It's, and it, I mean, it's a tremendous challenge and it's very personal. You don't know, uh, Phelps is a little bit different because swimming is rather personal, but uh, football players, basketball players, hockey players, you know what I mean? All of a sudden, this is now an individual sport and it can humble the best of them. And the proof was there Sunday. When you and I might have tied Tagger on the 12th pole when he dropped three in the drink. And to watch him look like a Friday afternoon hacker on one hole was unbelievable to watch. And the interview afterwards, you know, like he said it the best, it's not a team sport. you got to get out of it yourself. You know, he scores a 10 on a par three. So, you know, you and I can relate to that and a lot of guys watching could have. But those athletes, I think the attraction is, is the fact that it's such a personal sport that they can't master that well. Although Gretzky's a pretty good golfer if you're going to wrap him into it. But how, how interesting is it uh, for Paulina Gretzky 
whose dad was arguably the best hockey player in the world, and her husband's going to be the best golfer in the world. Interesting uh, way to live your life. I would say that Paulina has not had to worry about where her next meal is coming from too often. No, no, she, uh, no, she hasn't. Um, and she seems and, to and that's fine. Down. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. You know, I like, and, and, and some people, you know, anyone who thinks that Paulina Gretzky is just, you know, a, a whatever who's latching on to a, a star. I, first of all, I don't believe that because she's been around that. I don't think that that's something that, uh, you know, people who have not lived that life, not starstruck. And secondly, it's not like she's been only with Dustin Johnson for a year or two. I mean, they've been together for a long time now. So, um, by the way, back to your idea about or your comment on Tiger Woods on 12, that in case anyone wonders, that was not the highest ever score on a hole at the masters. Um, back in 1980, Tom Weiskopf got a 13 on number 12 and put five balls into the water, which is, is totally tin cup. I mean, I don't even know how a pro golfer at the masters puts five balls into the water, but he did. And, um, so, you know, at least Tiger saves one record. He doesn't, he doesn't lose the scoring record and put his name in on another place for a different scoring record. Uh, one other he, thing. Then he, he birdies five of the next six, just to let yeah. everybody know I can still play. Sorry. And no, and that, that just goes to show how good a tournament Dustin Johnson had, because Tiger Woods birdies five of the next six or six of the next seven, whatever it was. And even if you take out that 10 on three and give Tiger Woods a par there, he is still four or five strokes off the lead despite that. So, you know, good, good for Johnson. Let me ask you one more thing about the Masters, because going into this, there was nobody that was being talked about more than Bryson DeChambeau, who, you know, is, is, he's, he's a, a, he's a freak as a golfer because he's gotten all jacked up and he's huge and he hits the ball a trillion miles and he, he talks as big a game as sometimes he plays. Are you on the Bryson DeChambeau bandwagon or are you happy that he was humbled a little bit by this? Well, I wasn't happy that he was humbled by it. I, I, I don't mind cocky guys. Um, the the, the tightrope you walk when you're doing that, like I'm not a cheerleader for him, but you know, I could have pulled for him if he was there on Sunday. You know, I, I wouldn't have been hoping he didn't win it, but you got to be careful. And, you know, he, he just won the U.S. Open and then come out on Thursday and said, you know, Augusta will play like a par 67 to me. And you know the rest of the golfers are going, oh, yeah, well, good luck with that. And then when it was all said and done, he was like one under or something and complained about him, about his uh, physicality. And, you know, I guess he has some dizziness and I got to get my health back. And um, it's, it's amazing how the sore knee or the sore elbow acts up on you when you don't play as well as you told everybody you were going to. So he's got to be careful. He's got to wait more before he gets chirping too much. And he is the kind of guy that you would think fans would absolutely love because fans have always loved the guys that hit the ball a mile. That's always been something that people have gravitated to. And yet, you know what? I, I think it, maybe it's a golf thing. I don't know, but you're right. That kind of, that boasting, that a little bit, it's not confidence anymore. I, I mean, I think it comes across as cockiness plus the suspicion of how he reshaped his body in the way he did. I, I, I 
you know, I think there were an awful lot of people who were looking at that going, hmm, looks good on you. Looks really good on you that, that you were saying what you said and then barely eked in out through the cut and then finished poorly. That's why I say when he says this thing's going to play at a part 67 for me, even the guys in the tournament are going, yeah, well, let's see. This is, you know, even, even Tagger's going to go, it's a pretty humbling place. You should be careful what you say. And that com- he'll be very careful. I think there'll be a lesson learned there, but he's kind of like the present day John Daly. I mean, when John Daly come out and won the PGA championship was hitting the ball like so far, like 320. Now they hit it 360, right? But I mean, he was uh, he was the champion, and I think people like that. You know, they're kind of like cartoon characters a little bit for a while. And uh, but Daly's still very popular, right? I mean, so you can you can carry on, but he's going to have to win a bit more before he starts spitting stuff like that out. I think. Don, I've never understood, and, and look, I get that some athletes love to talk the talk, and I get that some athletes are, you know, Muhammad Ali was able to do it and, and you know, backed it all up and everything else, but is it not almost always or always better to not talk the game and just let your game do the talking for you? And you know what, if he really believes that he's going to play that as a 67, why not just go out there and play it as a 67 and then afterwards you can, you can make the case about, you know, how you were pretty confident that was going to happen. As soon as you open your mouth, I know we were talking the last week on the show to Pete Diakowski, who um, we were talking about his, talking about Alex Trebek when Alex Trebek died. And Pete, of course, had been former Ticat, had been on Jeopardy. And I asked Pete, and I asked him this before, but everybody remembers that he won that show Canada's Smartest Person uh, before then. And I said, when they do your little introduction thing with Alex Trebek and he asks you a question about yourself, did you say... I was, I won Canada's smartest person. And he said, "Mm, yeah, no, I'm going to win a round of jeopardy before I start throwing that one out there. Because why talk up your game before and and make yourself look like a fool? And I, I think that's exactly the right answer. And I think that's what DeChambeau should have done is said, boy, this is a tough course. I hope I do well. I think I can do well, but it's humbled a lot of golfers before me. We'll see. I think uh, Dustin Johnson has taken in it, and they mentioned it Saturday or Sunday that, you know, Gretzky had been talking to Johnson. And I think, uh, I imagine Gretzky has shared that kind of sentiment with him. Like, you know, you don't have to tell anybody how good you are. Just be humble and proud. And you know what I mean? Just take it humbly. Like Gretzky and Orr didn't spend any time telling anybody how good they were. They just went out and were the best. And when you have to tell somebody that you think you're going to do really well, then, you know, what he'd have been wiser to do, Scott, is tell his caddy on, you know, Wednesday, I'm going to play this thing like a 67. And if you do and you win, bring it up and say, you can ask my caddy. I said I was going to play this thing like it was a part 67. That's a little more effective that you just kept it almost internal. But to tell the world and then, you know, not, not back it up is not, uh, not good. No, you look like a, you look like a, you look like a buffoon when you do that, because now, you know, I mean, he, and he's a great player. There's no question. He's a great player. You just, I don't think great players need to remind people how great they are. Just play anyway. Normally, and, and you've said this before on the show, and it's absolutely true. Almost all the time, 
you come on here and you don't know what the topics are going to be before we do the show. You are flying blind and you always do it well, which is why I love having you here. But this one time I gave you the heads up because you had to look. The NHL announced today and released today the throwback third jerseys, fourth jerseys, fifth jerseys. I don't know how many. And actually, they're sweaters. We're not jerseys. But anyway, they announced they were they released all these extra sweaters that are going to be worn. Um, do you like the idea? First of all, I mean, I get, we all know why they're doing it to sell a bunch and to try and make some money, but do you like the idea? Well, I don't know who they're going to sell them to, but, um, I don't know if you may fans there. Do I like the idea? You know, I mean, it, it's always a topic, uh, you know, I, we know we've talked about it a little bit before, but it, if you're going to have maybe one, if you've got your home in a ways and you want to mix in a third jersey once in a while, it's these guys that have got like six different jerseys, like the Blue Jays. I mean, they have all kinds of, pardon me, different uniforms. And if they're going to go back and they're going to do some historical stuff and revisit that and not do something kind of kooky, then I guess, you know, I mean, I looked at the Leaf one which reminds me a little bit of the jersey they wore in the 70s. So I can kind of see going back to the 70s. You know, they didn't win then either. So why don't we bring that one back out? Um, the Habs, there's not much they can do with it because they don't play around much with that stuff. So do I like it? Yeah. I think if you're just going to have a throwback jersey and it's only one other jersey, again, it frustrates me when – you know, who knows what they're coming out wearing tonight. And they have so many of them. It doesn't make it special. Uh, some of these, and, and you mentioned the least, let's just go through a couple of these. And again, I understand that people, this is radio, they can't see it, but hopefully we can describe it a little bit and, uh, and help out because some of these are kind of cool. Some of these are kind of classy and classic, but then you get the Anaheim mighty ducks or the Anaheim ducks and they're going back to the, not quite to the beginning, because if you had gone to the beginning, I don't know if you remember the very first <laughs> Ducks logo, which was well, the like Donald the Duck movie. head looking like a goalie mask. That yeah. was that was okay. That was very Disney. This one is the one that looks like it's from the roller hockey era, which is the duck goalie jumping out of ice out of the bottom of the shirt, and there's lines everywhere and stuff. And it's like really that 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 doesn't to me if you're going to do this you have to at least look classy like you, the NHL is supposed to be the top league it is the top league in the world you you can't you can't be throwing uniforms on these guys that look like they're from some sort of southern california roller hockey league even though that's, that's where the ducks are well <laughs> i know but and that that's the challenge i mean what i i, I didn't look at them all i mean what is vegas's throwback jersey they're in year three. Yeah, they've right? made I mean, one up. They've made one up that's, you know, it's it's whatever. It's, you know, it's it's a it's a sweater that is unmemorable. You know, the, you know uh, and this is always a struggle with me being a bit of a traditionalist anyways. But, you know, the Rangers can do it. The Red Wings can do it. The Bruins, even the Sabres. You know, I mean, I mean, the guys that were in the first wave, the first six they let in, and they went to, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it, some of them are really on a stretch to try and do anything because it just doesn't work and they don't have a, they don't have the right history. So only, only the teams that you and I say should be able to do it are the ones that 
they should do it with. The, the rest of these, some of these Cowboys pick, um, they shouldn't be permitted. Well, I like okay. I'm looking at the Sabers one, and I've always liked the Sabers colors, but this one is horrible. It's the old cross swords with the used to be the red and black and white when they went into those colors for some reason for a while back in the early 2000s. Now they've got the the proper Sabers colors, but they've got the old stupid logo. Uh, the Calgary Flames is just horrendous. It looks like someone has lit a horse on fire, um, and I understand the horse is supposed to be breathing fire but it, it truly looks like the horse is being you know incinerated from the inside out unfortunately it's just a and bad they logo they wore that for a while yeah I they mean, did it was bad when they did it i mean it was bad when they wore it but they actually wore that logo uh the carolina hurricanes i love because they're just going to wear the old hartford whalers uniform which is a beautiful uniform although i'm sure the people in, in carolina are going what's that all about well let's you'll you'll figure it out um, and same with the Colorado Avalanche. They're wearing a Quebec Nordique sweater in Colorado colors. So the wine and blue and white, which, I mean, that one, that one to me looks pretty sharp. Um, but again, I think sometimes we ask these designers too much. You've got five good ideas. And then we say, well, if you've got five good sweaters, let's do 32. And so the 27 other ones are atrocious. Um, the Dallas see, Stars Phoenix looks like a practice sweater. The Phoenix one's a bit odd too. Phoenix is odd. The Detroit Red Wings. I mean, how can you screw up the Detroit Red Wings except they've removed everything except for the logo. It's all white now, pretty much. And again, looks like their practice sweater. Um, uh, you know, again, some of these have no history. I love the, with the LA Kings, they've gone back to the purple and and, and yellow and even the Minnesota wild. I love that they've gone to the North Minnesota North stars colors. I wish they would have just gone right back to the whole North stars uniform because it's way better. The Minnesota wild uniform is an atrocity. I mean, it's a crime against fashion and uh, you know, I would love it if they would just go back to the old North stars uniform, the old Don Beaupre, Cesar Maniego uniform. Those were great. With that classic N. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the New Jersey Devils, just in time for Christmas, has all the colors of Christmas. It's hideous looking, but it was hideous looking to begin with. Uh, the Rangers, I, I, you know, the, on the Rangers, the original six ones, I'm sorry, they shouldn't be fiddled around with because they're already what you want. They've got the stupid Statue of Liberty one again, which is no thanks. The the, the Ottawa Senators looks like a practice sweater. Uh, Philadelphia Flyers, meh. Pittsburgh, I don't even know. Like the Pittsburgh Penguins, they've got the same colors and it says Pittsburgh down the front. It's like what, they ran out of ideas completely? They ran out of time and just, oh, Pittsburgh was last. All right, just go with Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's here, Here's the, stu- here. this one might be the stupidest one. The St. Louis Blues are red. I just pulled that one up. The St. Louis <laughs> Blues. There's, there's only, there are two uniforms i think there's two unless i'm forgetting one the blue jackets and the blues that have a color mentioned in their name there might be another one that i'm not thinking of and one of them that is called the blues is red it's 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 monumentally stupid um and then you get as you say to the let's get to the toronto maple leafs because oh the vancouver canucks by the way not good um it looks like no, it, no, that's what they should have had. They should have had that flying V 
which was truly the worst uniform ever, but that made it the best uniform ever to bring back. People would have bought it because it was so hideous. But no, the Leafs, Don, I think there's unquestionably the worst part of the Leafs history is the Harold Ballard years in the early to mid seventies. And so what do you do? You create a sweater that reflects that era and looks very much like what Daryl Sittler and those guys used to wear. Daryl Sittler was the one of the few exceptions, but why would you create something that is a reminder of the worst possible time for you? Well, the only thing I can guess, and I'm not a hundred percent sure is that as these things were all developed, they voted on them at the end of a drinking contest. <laughs> and said, let's pick that one. Right? I mean, I, I just, our internet's down out in Hooterville here, so uh, I had to do it on my phone. Holy cow. I mean, you're right. And like I mentioned, like, really? They were so successful in the 70s. Settler, Vive, you know, great players made to be captains on teams that they probably didn't want to be captains on. And you know what? Let's bring that memory back. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, let's have Carl Brewer, the, the, the second or third wave of Carl Brewer as a leaf with Yuri Sira in net. Um the, the, you know the, the it just it, it's monumentally idiotic that you I'm trying to think of another example that doesn't come across as offensive. I don't want to use a, a really bad but think of someone's worst moment in history. And then you go to design some sort of outfit for them and make it out of that as a reflection of that worst moment in history. Uh, well, I don't actually, know. Actually, there's all kinds of real good examples on uh, Twitter right now. Where have Trump dressed up in various uh, things after his defeat, but that's the only thing I can relate it to. You're right. I mean, it's like, like the Red Wings. I mean, now the good news is, and, and when they go back like this, I, I agree, the Rangers have kind of buggered theirs up, but when you the Red Wings still have the Red Wing logo. The Blues still stayed consistent with the blue note on a red jersey. And the Habs and the Leafs, you know, like the traditional ones didn't get away from the true logo. They danced around it quite a bit. But they didn't, I didn't see Chicago's, but they, you know, other than New York Rangers, they didn't do much with the logo. I guess Pittsburgh kind of didn't do much with their logo either. They just wrote Pittsburgh, but. Anyway, yeah, no, I um, I get why they're doing it. I understand why they're doing it. It's about making money and selling sweaters and all the rest. But my goodness, it's uh, you know, leaf leaf fans should be throwing a hissy fit because it's just a giant reminder. Why didn't they just instead of the maple leaf, they should have just put Harold Ballard's face on the front as the logo with King Clancy stuck on the back, and then uh, you know, and then you would have been fine. Then you would have it would have been what the that uniform is all about. It's just. It's just, you know, I don't know. It's just stupid. It's, it's, why not even go to the Leafs? Like, go to the very early ones. Go, I mean, you'd be better off. The, the Leafs do have a really cool third uniform, and that's the Toronto St. Patrick's uniform that they wear once a year on St. Patrick's yep. Day if they have a game. That would have been cool. Bring that as you, but of course you can't because you've already brought that down one back. Hall of Fame ballots apparently today for baseball's Hall of Fame were sent out. So the voters are going to. Get on that. And two of the names that are on again, Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, two guys whose pasts have been called into question many times now and who there are great uncertainties around, although I don't think a lot of people would say it's not really uncertain, but nonetheless. 
if you were casting a ballot, there's un- there's no question about their performance. There's no question that if all else was equal, those two guys are in the Hall of Fame on their first ballot. But knowing what we believe we know about Clemens and Bonds, if you were casting a ballot, would you write their name down? I w- I'm going to sound like a politician here. I would need to know, Scott, more about some of the other guys that are in there. I mean, it, it's clear that the, the steroid, uh, you know, um, issue um, and the allegations are there. But um, if I was absolutely convinced that everybody else that's in the Hall of Fame was pure as the driven snow, then I probably wouldn't. But I haven't done a re- enough research and don't know enough that that's actually the case because they don't seem to be prying anybody out of there that had come up after the fact that, you know, they were on steroids. So I, you know, if uh, on a absolute purity basis, if everybody else is uh, as pure as the driven snow, then no, they cheated uh, perhaps to gain some of their success and in, in some of the cases, longer in their career, and they had careers that may well have got them in um, into the Hall of Fame anyway. And so, but if everything's equal, then no, they probably had a uh, uh, a little bit of help and that helped them achieve some things that they others weren't uh, given the opportunity to do on that basis, I would say no. But if it was widely known, which is why I don't have enough research, that, you know, you sit down and have a cup of tea with a couple of guys that have been around forever, like uh, old Jim Hunt, he used to write for the Toronto Sun, who's gone now, and say, well, you know, there's always rumor so-and-so was on him, and this guy and that guy. If that's the case, send them in. Political answer, sorry. No, it, it's, look, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult one, and it is more complicated by the fact that I think we do believe that certainly these two are not the only ones. We know these two were not the only ones. They're certainly not the only ones who have had rumors and suspicions around their name. They're not the only ones who were tied to the, the Mitchell report. They're, they're not the only two that certainly, I mean, we know there was a steroid era in baseball and that complicates yeah. it completely. Um, it does, but I just have such a hard time even in spite of that, rewarding people who break the records. And, and I'll tell you, if, if, if we do that, if we say, well, look, everybody else was doing it. Well, first of all, we know not everybody else was doing it. You know, it's like that old t-shirt that I saw the other day that says, surely not everybody was Kung Fu fighting. Um, anyways, <laughs> think about that one for a second. But no, I mean, if we know not everybody was doing it. And, but if we're going to use that as the answer, Ben Johnson has to get his gold medal back and get his world record back, although it's been surpassed now, because we know now that pretty much, if not everybody had some questions in that final race in Seoul about, you know, drugs or something in their past or whatever else, but we don't. Because we say no, but we know we're, we're very confident that we know that he for sure was guilty and therefore he doesn't get in because, because of that. I look, I, I, 
Bonds and Clemens maybe just had the misfortune of being the best at their position. And so there was more attention on them. Well, that's, if you have more attention on you, you then have to be as pure as the driven snow. You have to then know that you're being watched and be even better than the rest of the people. They weren't. Not, I, not think it's an absolute, I think it's an absolute given based on the injuries a lot of them play through that lots of guys were on lots of different things, whether they were painkillers or steroids to help them heal faster so they could get back in and you stay on the steroids for the rest of the year because it'll help you get through the season and the playoffs. And then next year you're, you know what I mean? But it's almost looked like they were doing it for medication purposes. I mean, there's got to be a ton of guys that got to the Hall of Fame that were, even if they were taking prescription painkillers so they could play. Is that an enhancement? Of course it is. Because Well, let me throw one other at you, games, well, they, They're playing in games, Scott, that they wouldn't have been able to play exactly. if they didn't have the painkillers. Exactly. Let me throw one more at you. we got to go, but let me throw one more. When you have guys who put up such crazy numbers like they did because their careers were extended. I mean, Bonds had his best years late in his 30s, which just does not happen under normal circumstances. Think of a guy like Fred McGriff, who's got, four, was it 498 home runs, I think, something like that. And under normal circumstances, you would say, well, there's a guy who is going to get in. But his numbers are now being compared to guys who have numbers that are nuts. And as a result, Fred McGriff is probably never getting into the Hall of Fame. Well, if those crazy, crazy, crazy numbers don't exist, what are the chances that he seems like more of a candidate? And so, well, you know, you what you've done is essentially... No, but what you've done is you've thrown some kerosene on the fire here, and now no one really knows what is real. It, was that... Expl- I mean... Bad example, but was it was it was it a naturally occurring fire or was it an explosion? How can well, we separate the two? You know, these guys, these guys, you know, everybody was. I mean, these guys, a lot of these guys, the high profile guys who were allegedly doing it, were getting needles in their butt. But so many of them were hiding it. I mean, they're hiding it in their toothpaste, so it couldn't be detected. You know what? They're getting around it, and that was always the argument going back to Ben Johnson. Is it's who? Who's the absolute very best at hiding this stuff? That's what Those it becomes. Are the true winners. That's what it becomes. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.